Imagine showing up for work at 7 a.m. and at 7.01, it's time to treat a person who's been shot in the chest. This is an average day for our guest, trauma and acute care surgeon, Dr. Andrew Scadam. And welcome to another Mandate, my friends. My name is Joe Obermuller. I'm here, as always, with my good friend, Mr. Ben Krush. What's up, everybody? Hello, ben. Joe Obermuller. Hello, sir. It's great to be with you once again. And I'm really excited about our conversation, as always. I am as well. It's a really special guest. Uh, not only a physician, uh, not only a friend, uh, but this is family for me. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, my beloved brother-in-law, Andrew Scadam. Andrew, welcome to the show. I appreciate you guys having me on. Yeah, thanks for being here. I'm, I'm uh, eager to, to jump into it, and I know, Ben, you are too. Absolutely. So we tried this uh, back in the wintry months uh, and had some technical difficulties. Uh, it was our newness to this podcast thing. That's right. This is Andrew Take Two. <laughs> That's right. So really excited uh, to get into it. Hey, everybody. Ben's being really nice to me right now because it was I was just like sweating over the computer. And we had this booked with Andrew and we were going to interview him. And he just sat patiently for like an hour while I was like mashing keys on my computer. And I could not figure it out. So here we are. Lemons. Lemonade, baby. Well, it was we, one of those things where I thought I uh, got off the hook, and uh, you know, I made my commitment. It didn't work out. No big deal. Don't worry about it until last night about ten. Where he's like, "Hey, by the way, you're going to be a podcast." Hey, see you tomorrow at twelve <laughs> thirty. That's exactly how it went down. I got permission <laughs> from his wife and said, "Hey, you're going to be on the podcast." Oh, and your wife already said yes, so yep. you're in. Yep. So welcome, Andrew. Let's um, let's get into it right away. Um, all right. So trauma, acute surgeon trauma surgeon yep you're down in florida you were originally from south dakota uh my memory of you is the the beautiful fitzgerald stadium rapid city uh as a legion baseball star uh and i remember seeing you as a kid uh, i wasn't uh i did not have the attraction to your sister nor did i know about her at that time thanks for bringing that up just go just right into that, yeah. We got to get all the cards out on the table immediately. Yeah, right. He's going to yeah lay it out flush. So uh, I think uh, our listeners need to hear about this, you know, Rapid City Midwest uh, guy that was devoted to the game of baseball. Uh, you took that to a Division One college. And how do you get to Florida as a trauma surgeon now? Right, so I, it, it can make the, the journey as long or as short as you want. But Got 45 minutes. All right, well, I can tell you. I mean, so none of the things that I'm doing now were my plan. If you look back to when I was 18 to when I was even 25, when I was maybe 30. Um, but being in Florida, being a trauma surgeon was certainly not my lifelong goal. And one of those things that I'm incredibly happy and, and just blown away with what I'm doing now. But, yeah, coming out of high school, and I remember, you know, Ben Krush as, uh, you know, showing up during winter workouts and, and, and helping you along as a little guy hit off a tee. <laughs> so, uh, I'm glad we have uh, similar ways where we started, but yeah, I, um, you know, set my goals on being a professional baseball player and coming out of South Dakota, that seems like a pretty good deal. Right. And you know, your eyes get opened real quick when you, when you get out in the real world and there's definitely something about being a big fish in a little pond versus a little fish in a big pond. So, uh, you know, everything that led to where I am now, I, I would not change a thing about what happened, you know, because 
if you're happy where you are now, you could never go back and change any of your failures because they're kind of what led to it. And if you're happy now, you wouldn't want to change anything. So, you know, going to Cincinnati, coming out of uh, coming out of South Dakota is a, an eye-opening experience, not just for athletics and playing with some very talented people, but also living in a big city, moving to a different state. And, you know, I tell my kids this or my wife this now, it's just it's so much different than than what it is now to set off when you're 18 with a Rand McNally map and show up in Cincinnati and somehow find your dorm and start school. And, you know, ultimately baseball didn't end up working out for me. Um, and then had to decide what I wanted to do, you know, cause when that, when that went away, you know, what are you going to do and be productive? And I'd always had a lifelong, uh, kind of fascination with, with medicine as well as, you know, how can you help people out, which is the normal thing. But, also as a challenge, you know, coming after playing baseball for a couple of years and, and having, you know, my focus beyond business, a non-specific degree and being told, well, medicine's not an option for you. You know, you're just not going to make it. You can't do it. So also having someone tell you that you can't do something is, is part of the drive of what got me into it. So focused up, um, changed my major to biology, really enjoyed those sciences and then ended up going to medical school in West Virginia. So so before you, I, I really want to dive into this baseball thing because yeah. I think a lot of the journey, well, you know, I love baseball, but the, a lot of the journey here is this wasn't an, an injury that made you stop playing baseball, correct? No, I wasn't good enough. <laughs> That's and, and and what I, it comes down to, you know, when you uh, have to face that reality of, of there is no career in this, that this is a futile endeavor. As much as you want it to happen, it's not going to happen. And you had to come to that decision as a, what, 19, 20-year-old kid? Yeah. And what does that conversation look like with yourself, right? It's not a coach being like, Andrew, you're not good enough. You are you just need to quit. Not exactly. But, you know, having, having a coach being pretty upfront with you that you're likely not going to get a shot, you know? And then where do you go from there? I mean, you go through anger of, you know, where do you focus at? You know, if he would just let me play, if he would give me a shot. And I think one of the striking things for me is it seemed like the people around me, uh, some of my friends and other baseball players, family, were more upset with that decision than I was. Um, I remember it being pretty early acceptance that this just wasn't going to work out. You know, because from there you, you say, well, should I just move schools? Should I um, come back and play baseball at SCSU? Should I look at, you know, junior college in Florida? Should I keep, you know, there's ways to keep pursuing the baseball dream then, right? So you have to make that decision. Am I going to keep going down this road um, to what you want to do? Or should I be honest with myself and figure out what I'm supposed to do? And to have that early on is, is difficult. And it, you know, I didn't have a real clear vision of where I was supposed to go. But at that time, I felt pretty strongly that it wasn't in baseball. You know, I felt like I gave it a great shot. I did my best and this wasn't going to work out. And I've never had, you know, the vision of exactly where I'm going, but I think I've always wandered in the correct direction. And uh, that's kind of important too. I've not been laser focused on the outcome or goal, but this is, you know, the north, south, east, west. This is the general direction you need to go. And so baseball was west. I said, well, let's start heading east and see where this brings us. I am just absolutely enthralled because I think this is very anti today. I think, I think every, not every, I think you're an exception to the rule because I do believe most people that have athletic dreams will just continue the dream. 
And, and, you know, looking back, sometimes you see that. And there's great stories in college athletics or in uh, or in Major League Baseball when you look and they say, you know, so-and-so didn't start for the first three years. And this is their senior year, and now they're a starter, and they're going on. So, you know, a bit of that nags on you because you say, well, what if I just would have gave it another year? You know, what if I would have done that? And I, I always fall back on when I look at right now, I look at what I do. I look at the family I have, the wife I have. If I would have changed anything about that journey, none of that would have happened. That's right. So I always go back to that, and that helps me immensely. Good. I think, though, that that's so important because hindsight and being able to evaluate that journey and the path and all the things that have happened because of those choices, that's uh, it's a very redeeming thing to do, right? But in the moment when you're you're beginning to realize this dream is dying, you know, that moment is a really hard moment for, I, I would wager a guess, everyone who experiences that, that moment of reality meeting expectation and those things not aligning. So what was it for you where it was just you and the thought? Like, Because it sounds to me like by the time you were telling other people that this was your choice, you had already worked through it. And that's why they were more upset than you were because you had already spent some time with it. Do you remember the, a time when you were like first realizing like, oh, this is, this dream is, is not going to be the thing. Well, I think it, it came down to really, you know, at that point when your athletic career is failing where you're at, you know, you look at other avenues, you know, and that was specifically, you know, do I come back home to a college back here? And the goal would be to play baseball, right? So I'd come back, play baseball here. Do I go to, um, you know, a junior college and spend a couple of years there? And even even reaching out to get, you know, letters of intent to go to these different schools and it just sitting down and looking at them just didn't make sense, you know, because mm. at that point I had pretty much accepted that, you know, where am I going to go with this? Like if my goal is just to play baseball, I know I'm not going beyond college to play baseball. And part of that was, you know, playing at Cincinnati, we played against these these big teams. We played against these Division One teams and. Uh, I saw the caliber of these other players and being able to just look around and say, that's not you, man. Like it just, it's, it's not you. So I think that was, that was part of it. And so for me, I'd already kind of packaged up baseball and put it away. And so changing anything I was doing to chase that goal anymore, wasn't going to happen. And it felt like those around me, like some of my roommates, uh, even family were more intent on me chasing that goal okay so moving on now you choose who, who in your relational world is telling you and it clearly it drives you who is telling you and you don't have to get into specifics but who's telling you that you okay now andrew you want to go be a doctor like i remember you in high school dude i don't think you're gonna want that or i don't think you'll be able to get there who in your relational world is saying no and 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 that's probably the motivating factor of, okay, I'm going to go do this then because you say no. It really was, you know, when you give up baseball and, you know, you lose a lot of, um, when you're playing collegiate athletics, you lose a lot of resources, right? So you lose uh, the tutors, you lose study guides and stuff like that. So then going back to, um, you know, the counselors and going back to some of those people say, hey, I want to change my major. You know, what's what's appropriate for me? Where can I go? And they look at what you've done so far, which is very broad, basic, and not very impressive. And they say, well, you know, here's kind of your options. And I said, well, what about medicine? You know, like, I, I think I, I'd be a good doctor. I'm caring. I'm compassionate. I've always had a drive to take care of those around me. And 
And then just I, I remember uh, one of the counselors just laughing and saying, no, man, that's like, no, you're not going to do that. So and and setting off in that into the sciences and really having to make up ground, you know, so I'm already two years into school. You know, I ended up finishing in four years of the biology degree, but making that abrupt turn from business to biology was not easy. You know, I had to take summer classes, I had to double up and I had to work hard, but that, you know, I've always been able to fall back on a strong work ethic. I'm certainly not the smartest guy out there whatsoever, but I think I'm pretty reasonable and I think I'm a hard worker. And so I was able to make that abrupt change. Okay. So then, you know, listeners, I have an inside story. Obviously you've, you've, you're listening and you understand, I know pretty much know this story so I can drive this conversation. So I'm driving here. That's good. Hang on. I'll, I'll ask any contextual questions Very good. If, if I'm like, yeah, I'm feeling left behind. Good. <laughs> Fill it in. Andrew, go into one thing that I was fascinated about, uh, which I think people, I don't think there's a dumb question out there, but I remember when you went to a DO school and when most people think of doctors, they think of MD, right? I think yep. it's a show, like a TV show or maybe Hollywood pushes that around. So tell me why you made the decision to go DO. And what are the benefits of going to a DO physician? Yeah, and this is uh, one of those things that doesn't relate to anything I do now, but just another story of where I set off maybe in the right direction, but not near what I envisioned doing or how it would go. So, you know, and during college, I picked up some jobs. You know, you got to start working, stop playing athletics, start working. So, you know, I uh, I was a bouncer at a, a bar in downtown Cincinnati. I was a DJ. I did all these things, which I you know, just bring up because I think they're super relatable to the job I do now because, you know, being a physician, being a doctor is being in customer service. And some of the best doctors I know were waiters, servers, barbacks, worked with uh, outside of medicine, worked um, in a serving type industry before they became physicians. And that, that makes them great doctors. So, you know, as I started to look at what type of physician I wanted to be, originally I wanted to be a neurologist and go into pain management, which is kind of funny now I'm a trauma surgeon so they're complete opposite ends of the spectrum for what you want to do so you know looking at you know how do you get your medical degree and then doing pain management how do, how do you manage these patients outside of uh, writing prescriptions and that's where I got into the manipulative therapy uh, st- interviewed you know I came back to USD interviewed at the medical school here uh, interviewed some osteopathic medical schools, ended up going to West Virginia, falling in love with the school, falling in love with uh, the area, and really buying into the manipulative therapy that, that being a DO offers. What is the, so now we're just getting clinical, essentially, but I, yeah. a place where we're going to go. What's the biggest difference between, like if you go, I think a lot of our our people who listen to our show are going to go pick a doctor, and in that family practice they're going to see one's a DO and one's an MD. Is there any difference? I think philosophically there's a difference. I think the training is very similar when you get to the basic sciences. Uh, but when you look at the types of students that go to either, obviously there's a, a large cohort that are interchangeable and intermixable where you you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between MD or DO. But I think some of the individuals that, that pursue to go to get a DO degree to go into osteopathic medicine, um, have a more holistic view of healing. They want to use all available resources, and a lot of them are driven to go into more primary care specialties. So you know, family practice, general IM, general OB, and practice in more rural communities. So as, as you know, as time has gone on, uh, these have become less distinct differences between that. Um, but those are just some of some that I see going through. Okay. So you pick this DO school, 
Mm-hmm. There just happens to be uh, a lovely looking lady there. First day orientation. You meet your beautiful wife. Yep. At school. Walk us through. I mean, obviously, dating in graduate school of any kind makes a lot of sense, right? Where there's proximity there. Do you guys start having that conversation of like what our life is going to look like if we're both going to choose this rigorous path? No, <laughs> I think I mean the most basic answer is no, and you're just living in the moment and uh, looking at that now. You're just trying to survive, but you know, when you look back at how hard you think you worked at any stage in your life, you know, high school might've seemed like a challenge to you, but you could go back and do high school now in a year, you would think just like college four years. I did a four year degree is very difficult, but with what I know now, I mean, I could go back and knock that out in 18 months. So at the time, no, I think that we both also didn't necessarily know what type of specialist we wanted to do. We had a, a general path for, for how we wanted to go. And, got put in the place we were through no real driving of our own. Obviously it was, it was very hard work to get there. Um, but to ultimately end up where we are now, we couldn't have predicted that whatsoever. So how do you choose trauma surgery as a place you want to go? Well, for me, it just kind of makes sense. I, I certainly didn't know I wanted to be a trauma surgeon. Certainly didn't know I wanted to be a trauma surgeon in Florida and, you know, going through medical school. And like you said, what we expect out of younger individuals now is that they know what career they want to do at age five. You know, when you get into medical school, we expect that during your first year, you know what career you want. And I think that's a disservice, you know, because it takes some life experience to decide what's going to be good for the rest of your life, you know, and uh, the day-to-day of being a trauma surgeon, I, I make the joke sometimes that the, you know, the, the coolest part about being a trauma surgeon is telling p- people you're a trauma surgeon because a lot of what I do is, paperwork and orders and not direct patient contact and you know the story you told at the beginning about the gunshot wound to the chest that's a rare occurrence you know most of what I do is take care of people that fall off you know fall off a curb or fall off a ladder or get in a car accident and uh not to undervalue them you know and it took me we'll get into this like as far as the journey but it took me a while to realize that being a trauma surgeon is just the care of the injured individual no matter how severe or how minor it may seem but to provide care to the injured individual. A lot of this gets back to kind of my upbringing growing up in South Dakota and just kind of being a wild youth. I mean, we were always outside. We were always jumping off stuff, riding four wheelers. And I tell people all the time now, uh, you know, someone comes in and they say, Hey, we're out uh, riding four wheelers, shooting bottle rockets. And, you know, we got in a wreck and everyone else is so surprised by that. I said, Oh yeah, man, that sounds, that sounds like a good time. You know, that that's just good old fashioned fun. And, I feel very fortunate to have been able to survive all the things we did growing up, you know, outside, swimming, jumping off things, riding motorcycles and doing all this and to not have a permanent injury. So I feel like I relate very closely to my patients. So kind of a long answer just to say that it just makes sense to me. You know, the mechanisms, how people get in those situations just make sense to me. How do you, um, some I'm, I'm, I want to go back to this meeting your meeting your wife while you're in school and navigating that with each other because the demands of your job are probably pretty high and the stakes are high some of the time and and you both have patients you need to care for and a schedule you need to keep and you have a couple kids and uh, so your parents and you're trying to balance all that um, 
I, I imagine that's kind of challenging at times for for working parents who are both physicians. How do you guys do that? We talk about it a lot, and we try to be very honest with each other. Uh, we try to give a lot of grace, but both our jobs require that we can sit down for dinner, have the kids managed, and then you know, one or the other might just have to get up and leave without telling you where they're going, why they're going anywhere. So it takes a lot of trust, giving a lot of grace. Um, and part of it is how we explain it to our kids, you know. Uh, mommy has to go help someone else uh, deliver a baby. Mom, you know, daddy has to go take care of someone so that their parents can make it home to them. But there is a lot of variability. But it, it doesn't necessarily make it easier because we're both physicians. There is a different understanding since we both know what he's what each other's job entails, but it's still difficult. I, I just I'm struck right now about what your kids think. Like, have you ever asked them, like, "Hey, what do you think about what I do?" You know, like, what's their perception of what you guys do? Well, I I think about it mostly when we are telling stories between us, or we're telling our kids what I did. You know, I took care of, you know, someone that got shot with a bow and arrow through the leg, and then they go to school and then they come back and they told someone that story. And you're like, wow, I mean, out of context, I mean, in our house, that's perfectly normal to have these conversations about, you know, uh, a difficult delivery or a C-section or some sort of terrible traumatic injury. And then it becomes very evident and more apparent when they tell that story outside of our house. But I think they have a, you know, for four and six, they have an incredible understanding of what we do, but that still doesn't change the fact that, we're just normal parents. So, you know, mom's trying to go do a delivery and you got a four-year-old that's crying and begging at the door and trying to knock the door down. I mean, that is, that doesn't go away just because they have any level of understanding. So the everyday normal parenting is exactly what we do. And you, I, I love, one of my favorite things about you, Andrew, is that a lot of people would, would put you and your wife on a pedestal because of your profession. You always knock down the pedestal. Every single time. You always want it to be known. I'm just a normal dude going through the same kind of stuff you're going through, whether it's professional or personal. Uh, it's just one of the... I think it, it, it goes back to what you said about being a waiter. I've, I've heard multiple successful podcasts uh, hosts talk about if you really want to get in the human experience, you should do some kind of extreme customer service route. And an a easy way to do that is through being a waiter or waitress or picking up garbage or whatever it may be. You just treat humans very different. How do you think you have, why do you have that perspective? Well, I mean, the first thought that comes to mind is just my upbringing, you know, uh, having a very, uh, good perspective on life from my parents, you know, and then always being kept humble by them no matter what, you know. So not not to knock other physicians, but I think, you know, if you go into it for an instant boost in social status, an instant boost in anything other than you go into it because you care deeply about about helping people get better, you're going to be severely disappointed because the day-to-day reality of it's very tough. Um, I'm trying to remember the basketball coach from around here up in Yankton, Don. Oh, Don Meyer. Don Meyer. So my mom uh, shared with me all throughout my training uh, these quotes from Don Meyer. And there's 
so many that are so good. But one of the things that he said, and with his basketball team, you know, he got these collegiate basketball players. He said, you know, no one's too good to pick up trash. You know, I don't care who you are. If you're walking around, you see a piece of garbage on the ground, you pick it up, you throw it away. And I think that just just little little thoughts, you know, trying to self self check, trying to um, be relatable helps that. But it's it's a constant battle. It's a constant issue, you know. And that's that's one of those things where you know even in victory or success, like you never want to lose your vision. So you always want to come back to that. Uh, but for me, having family and friends that help you do that is is probably why hopefully I'm able to do that. But it takes constant attention for all of us and to always try to remain humble, try to remain true to yourself. And for me to be able to check in with people that you trust in your circle and see how you're doing and be honest about it, having people that'll be honest with you. So do you, do you set up that conversation? Do you have that built into your relational world where you're checking in to make sure, Hey, I'm, um, am I doing this right? In our relational world, like personally, professionally, or what are you talking about? Both. Either. I think so. Um, you know, I rely heavily on mentorship in everything I do. And in our house, too, we try to set, you know, the standards for, for how we want to be perceived. And we have honest conversations about how things may look depending on depending on what's going on. So I think we have a very open and discussion uh, conversation both in my household. And then I have a very good set of professional mentors that help with that, too. And they set that standard, right? Like you rise and fall with leadership. So having, you know, having leadership with you uh, that helps you stay humble, that helps you stay, I, I always put it as normal, you know, and we'll do these job interviews and I, I'll say, hey, it was a completely normal person. But that's, that's a, a big attribute when you're talking to physicians or APPs that, yeah, this is a person I just talked to on the phone for a half hour. And uh, that's, that's, that's difficult to find. So when you, when you talk about mentorship in your household and professionally, what sorts of topics do you find being mentored on uh, is, is helpful or, or useful to you? Do you find that there's a theme there in your career or is it, is it a wide array of, of topics? It, it's always a wide array. And so when I think about specific topics, whether it's personal, professional, um, or hobby-based, you know, you have that three to four people you can go to. Um, for me, being able to go to my dad and have an honest conversation, uh, cause he'll give you a completely honest answer to what you're saying. Like he doesn't care if you're the president of the United States, you go, uh, and tell him something you're doing. He'll be more than happy to tell you that you're being a little uppity. You are, you know, Hey, you need to pull it back a little bit. You need to consider what that person's thinking. Um, and even amongst my family, Ben, you're very aware that with my sister's if I'm out of line, they will call me and tell me. They don't care who I am or what I do. Uh, and then with my wife, I mean, uh, hopefully she knows this, but it's an open invitation to be, hey, like you're out of line. You're not leading correctly. I don't like the direction you're going. So being open to that kind of feedback and that kind of open conversation with in, in multiple areas of your life, you have found beneficial. Yes, and you know, your first your first response you always have to tempt us down is to be defensive and or to be angry about what someone's telling you so it always takes that little bit of you know you open yourself up to this now listen to what they're saying yeah uh yeah that defensiveness is so it just like creeps up 
it, it does, you know, your first response is always to defend yourself. Yeah. I did this because, um, but just, you know, the, as, as I get more experienced or get older, however you want to say it, to, to try to be less swift to judgment, to, it, it's a lifelong, it's a lifelong goal to get to that place. Right. It, it is. And it takes practice. You know, I work with student actors all the time in my, in my job. And, and one of the reasons why employers like hiring actors is because actors are constantly receiving feedback about their performance or about whatever they're doing on stage. And think about how many people are absolutely terrified of getting up in front of a crowd. Yeah. And so student actors, I think this is one of those life skills that's so important for any discipline to be able to get up in front of, in front of other people and, and, and share something which is just totally, it's such a, you're exposing yourself to such a degree um, that, that seems so frightening. But then once you do it and, and you realize that you can survive that and then actually take and receive and implement feedback, uh, it, it stops being so scary and, you, and, and the student actors can stop apologizing for stuff that they've done or uh, they can stop thinking that I think their work is bad because I asked them to make an adjustment. It's like learning about all of those uh, emotional responses to feedback. And so employers love it because actors are like, oh, okay. Yeah. And they're just so open to that. Whereas I think in other industries, it's like your once a year performance review or something is probably a really horrible thing. To, I don't know. It's like a horrible thing to look forward to because it's like we never get training or 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 any sort of mentorship on what it what it means to get feedback and receive it and it's like you're still cool i love you you know i mean one of the things we were talking about before before this podcast was when you actually listen to yourself recorded and you notice things that you don't do such as saying the word and or whatever and so listening to yourself is a very harsh brutal immediate feedback uh or even listening to yourself leave a recorded message for someone um, but being able to take that and do something constructive with it is helpful and changes. And, you know, I think if you want any sort of growth, whether it be personally or professionally, uh, with anything that you do, that you should seek that. I couldn't agree more. And I know that that's hard to do. I know that that's hard to put yourself out there like that. But I think the reward on the other side is worth it. All right. So let's transition a little bit. I think when when we heard Joe's introduction to you people hear trauma surgery and they're like oh give me some of that yeah so let's go there all right so you are down in florida listeners there's only one reason i don't own a motorcycle and that's because of dr andrew scadam so that's the kind of stuff that he's dealing with on a day-to-day well maybe not day-to-day week-to-week basis motorcycles in florida are very dangerous motorcycles in general are very dangerous all right yeah we call them donor cycles see no offense, wow. South Dakota, Sturgis Rally, it's one of our biggest now, incomes. With the caveat that motorcycles are exhilarating, super fun to ride. Oh, I yeah. grew up riding dirt bikes, uh, still ride a dirt bike when we go to Alabama and visit family. So um, not to knock it, not to just be a Debbie Downer on them, but, you know. Very fun. With anything in life, there's risks. That's right. So walk us through some of your, your, your not our listeners, your most memorable experiences as a trauma surgeon yeah this is uh, a great and one of my favorite questions because i i get this question you know when we're out with a group of friends or something and i get introduced as a trauma surgeon 
always get asked, what's the craziest thing you've ever seen? Um, and I think where people are going with that is they want some incredibly gory injury. And, and just to be completely honest, my brain never goes to that, right? So my brain always goes to like the most horrific interpersonal situation. So I always think about, you know, uh, like a terrible situation where there was an unfortunate, untimely uh, death in a young person, and I had to talk to the family. But no one, no one identifies with that, so it's really hard to ever talk about that. So I know when that question comes up, you want to hear about um, the guy that was riding a motorcycle, ran into a stop sign, the post impaled him, we had to take him to the operating room, I got to use... Uh, like a circular saw in the operating room and actually remove a post from someone's chest. Like that's, that's where people are going with that. Or I assume you guys can tell me if I'm wrong, but that's when you ask what's the worst thing I've ever seen, you want to hear about the mechanism. You want to hear about what's, what's the gnarliest injury you've ever seen. And, and that's, I want, I want you to go, I want you to go where you, you are intending to go. Because, no, and that's no, why, that's that why I asked you. I didn't know why you said that a second ago, but now I know why you said that. Exactly. Because I want our listeners to hear Andrew. I don't care about the... I know those stories. Yeah. I do. And maybe our listeners are interested in that. And if you are, find Andrew wherever you think you can find him. I am most interested in your most memorable experiences as a trauma surgeon. Yours. Yeah. Not everyone else's. Now you're just going to the first thing that comes to mind. So for me, the, the, the top ones are not necessarily the most incredible, magnificent, movie-like mechanism where there was exploding cars uh, and, and drama associated with that. But I think about the number of survivors that we had. And my, my first memory actually went to, um, I still have this like thank you postcard from this girl when I was in residency because not trying to complain about this, but counting on a single hand how many thank you cards I've got. So I've been, a, uh, I don't know, let's just say I graduated medical school in uh, 2009. So, you know, been a physician for over 10 years, been a uh, attending trauma surgeon for five or six years, and have probably got four thank you cards. Um, for saving their life. Yes. And not, not to complain about that, um, but that makes it more memorable for me. Like my wife's an OBGYN and she comes home all the time with flowers and gifts and stuff like that. And, um, That's you interesting. know, it, it is, it's kind of weird, right? So you know, I think greatly about, you know, this young girl that came in and was in the hospital for months after a bad car accident. I think she was like running, jogging, got hit by a car. And, you know, we did countless surgeries on her in the hospital forever. And then just get a simple thank you post, like postcard of her standing in front of her door at her house. I think she lived, I don't know, up north or something like that. But, uh, hey, thank you. I'm going off to college this year. So for me, that's the most memorable. And that's not, that's not dramatic. And it's not, the gory stuff, but, but my mind instantly went to that and that card is still in my desk. Yep. Yeah. And that's why I asked that. Yeah. Uh, but I know what people want to hear is like, I had a motorcycle guy, all 10 fingers come off, brought him in in a baggie, you know, all 10 fingers. Then what do we do with that? Well, it goes, it goes back to what you were saying earlier about, you know, my, my sort of dramatic introduction for you, right? Yeah. Which, Which is not a typical day. We, we might think it is right. Which is why we asked that question. Right. Yep. Um, because really your typical day is paperwork and managing people and, and, and that, and all the challenges associated with that and, and managing organizations and doing all these things. And so sometimes you lose sight of the, of the core reason why you're doing what you're doing. Yeah. And so do these experiences like this girl who sent you the postcard remind you 
and and focus you on what you're there to do as opposed to getting bogged down with all of the administrative tasks or the interpersonal conflicts that are happening or what whatever else is going on that's kind of pulling your focus away from your central or core reason for doing what you're doing absolutely i mean remember trauma surgery is surrounded by drama you know drama goes into a lot of these uh, situations that happen plus it's in florida so Every, you know, most of what people see outside of Florida with Florida, man, that, that happens down there. Like that is an everyday occurrence. You know, man robs liquor store with an alligator. That's, you know, that's the stuff that is not too far removed from an everyday reality. But for me distinctly, it was having a boss and a mentor right when I started out in doing trauma surgery, because even doing a fellowship, you know, to do trauma surgery, which uh, another thing thing people aren't necessarily aware of is there's no like fellowship in trauma surgery you do general surgery so you're a general surgeon and then you spend a year doing surgical critical care so non-operative ICU care and then those two things together makes you a trauma surgeon so you know you don't go to trauma school do that but it's it's kind of the combination of being a general surgeon and a, and a surgical intensivist which make a trauma surgeon and uh, once again just trying to be sensitive to to people that may listen to this, I didn't have a lot of good mentors going through training that impressed upon you that the day-to-day life of being a trauma surgeon was enjoyable or that they enjoyed taking care of these. Cause I think to come back to your question, if you get caught up in that, you know, that every patient that comes in is a dirt bag, a drug addict, an alcoholic, you know, I, you know, why were they out doing this stupid stuff after midnight? You lose that vision quick. And I think starting out right away with, with a boss that just sat me down and she said, you know, trauma, trauma is just care of the injured patient. However, that may happen whenever that may happen and whoever that happens to. And, you know, that recentering on that, cause that's, that's hard to fight off. And that's a creep that happens all the time is losing that focus because a lot of people that come in are drug addicts, alcoholics, people making bad decisions. But remember that you don't know what, what's going to happen in that person's life. All you're there to do is to, to fix them, to get them back to health, to accomplish whatever destiny that they're meant to do. And you don't know, like they could be a drug addict. You could fix them and they could go on to live a completely separate life from that. They may go back to the same life, but that's, that's not up to the trauma surgeon to decide. And that's not your job to, to judge what happened to them, how it happened to them or why it happened to them. I mean, your job is to take care of the president of the United States, the same as you take care of the average person or whoever gets hit by a car, you give them the same treatment, you give them the same chance. And for me, that was a really life altering realization when I realized that it's just care of the injured person, no matter what happens to them. And once again, realization that didn't happen until I became an attending trauma surgeon. And that's years and years after being a doctor, after being a surgeon. So all it takes sometimes is just that little bit of change in perspective that can that can make you successful or unsuccessful. Uh, th- this kind of reminds me of some of those moments maybe that have happened in your career that that have reminded you of that. And this may be you know stories like the the girl who sent you the postcard, but also moments where you've wit- witnessed something that was uh, maybe you couldn't explain it other than total miracle, you know. Um, like moments of of light like that where you're like man i i just got i feel really blessed that i just got to witness that yeah i mean that that happens every day to me because remember that science and medicine only explains so much of this much of what we do 
is trying to rearrange things and reestablish the body, blood flow, perfusion, organs, the way that they were before. We're not inventing anything. We're not putting anything new in. We're just trying to restore the God-given way it was. And much of our hope is once we do that, that the body heals. Remember that we only, you know, we only remove injured, bleeding things and then let the body heal itself. We aid in that process, but the miracles we see now with the technology we have, where medicine has gone, especially in the, in the realm of critical care uh, in the last 15 to 20 years, you know, the biggest change, you know, trauma surgery has been trauma surgery since the advent, right? You stop bleeding, you stop holes in things, you reroute what needs to be rerouted. But then the continuum after that, so you've stopped them from dying of the initial insult. Now you have to support them through the healing process, and that's, that's all you're doing. So that's, that's a day-to-day realization for me, that I'm there in my specific role, not as the end-all, be-all to their care, but simply as another tool to help them get better. And more than anything, time is the biggest healer. You know, if you can stop people from dying of infections, bed sores, things that happen after trauma and let them heal, that's, that's the number one thing we do. You know, it's funny. Well, it's not funny. It's just... I never thought about medicine as a serve, like a like being a part of the service industry. And so, as you're talking about serving and being a bartender and and those those other t- more typical things that I think about when I think about a service industry, it's it's amazing how true that is about about understanding the thankless nature of those types of jobs. And I think about that with with politicians, and and now I'm understanding this with doctors too about it's very rare that you you hear from people what how you've changed their lives and in your case saved their lives. Yep. Uh, and so it's really important to keep that focus in mind about why you're doing what you're doing because that reinforcement isn't going to very often come externally. No, I mean my job is to shepherd the best available technology, talent and resources to help someone get better. And that's all I do, you know. Um, but it, it you talk about the the craziness of being a trauma and acute care surgeon. I mean, you can, you can, in one moment, be opening someone's chest and sewing on their heart, have that person die. In the next moment, take your bloody stuff off, go next door, and the patient with an ankle fracture is complaining to you about why their why their breakfast is delayed. You know, so so how do you how do you address that? So, you know, I was I was talking about that this morning. I was on a run with my dad, and you know, talk about being defensive. So. In, in that moment, does it help to say, listen, I've been up all night. I just had someone die on me. I'm sorry your breakfast is late. You know, c- does that help? I don't think it does. I mean, your job is to show up in front of every patient in every situation and give them the best possible face you can have, you know, because being tired, having these emotional things happen to you, uh, there's no way the patient can understand that without the perspective of what you're doing. So I found that to be a very difficult part of the job too, right? Um, just just in the amount and levels of, you know, both what's happening emotionally and physically throughout the day and being able to provide, you know, a constant level of, of excellence as a surgeon and, and approach every patient with, you know, the same, the same, you know, fortitude and the same attitude. I, uh, one of the huge blessings of these conversations, Ben, is that I feel like 
after each episode, my perspective on something has has broadened, and I have, I, I just I just love the opportunity to walk in your shoes for a second, Andrew, and so I really appreciate you sharing all these uh, all these stories and your perspective with us today. This has just been awesome. I I couldn't agree more. People, maybe I've shared this on a previous podcast, but it's absolutely true. We we get asked now that it's just been overwhelming the amount of people that are listening they'll ask well what's the purpose now what's the next thing and it's like i get two hours with my best friend and we're around some really amazing people that get to give just their everyday life or something that they're jacked up about at that time and we get to walk in those shoes for 45 minutes and i leave with a different perspective on the human race than i did prior so can i ask you one thing andrew Yes. I think it's I don't think people can wrap their heads around the idea of death until it happens uh, and the finality of that and you have literally people in your the palm of your hand literally in the palm of your hand as a part of your job how do you deal with that how do you compartmentalize that this is going to be one of the things I'm going to see during the next month, maybe, right? You're, do, you're going to do everything you can to not make that happen. But at some time, it's part of your life. There, all of our listeners likely are never going to experience that, like be in the room where it happens. Yeah, I haven't figured it out completely yet, just to, just to be honest with Good. you. you know, and, and having a wife that's a physician, remember in, in the OBGYN world, the expectations are very high for survival. You know, any death that happens in that process is just an enormous tragedy and was not expected to happen, which is an incredible thing when you look at the history of childbirth and how it's now expected that the outcome is so great as it, sh- as it should be and is awesome. And then you transition to my job that has super low expectations <laughs> in a lot of these cases, right? Because these people, a lot of them weren't meant to survive and we do our best to make them survive. So, you know, the day-to-day of dealing with that is is pretty routine, but it it doesn't lessen the impact. Of course. And I think that traditionally, when you look at people that are in jobs like that, trauma surgeons, you're meant to be um, the end-all, be-all repository for those feelings. Those feelings, you you should know how to deal with them, and you put them in. But I, you know, I still haven't figured out how to deal with it because I am I feel incredibly strongly and that hasn't changed a lot over the years you know you expect to be callous but at the same time I feel that that being able to uh, be open in those discussions you know it it kills me to have to tell parents that their kids died and um and uh, you know I have nothing against whatever they need in that moment a hug and I feel uh overwhelming sadness for them and that hasn't changed and I don't think it's going to and I don't necessarily want it to because you know they always say that you know at some point once you once you become numb to things like that it changes how you do and hopefully that's one of the reasons I'm good at my job is because I allow myself to to feel some of those emotions which are which are horrific you know when you have people die like that and to explain those situations trying to figure out how to deal with them in a healthy fashion um, the only things I've figured out so far is is to I guess address them and um, will be the word to to recognize them not try to push them away but to say like yeah this is a really 
terrible situation. This is incredibly sad, and it's okay to be sad about this. Um, but as far as long term, because you deal with that so much, and I find that you know the more tired and worn out I am, the the worse I deal with it. So you know the other side of that is you deal with death and dying all night, and then you got to go to your daughter's acro class, you know, like how do you walk into that situation and make that flip from, you know, I was just up for 24 hours. Unfortunately, you know, someone passed away, but now, you know, we're just going to go flip it and we're going to go watch ballet and we're going to smile. And, and part of it is, you know, who do you talk to about that? You know, like you don't really talk to your peers about that that much. Right. And you don't want to bring that home and just belabor your, your significant other with those talks. But you know, my wife's been great where we have those conversations and, you know, she affirms those things and we talk openly about it, which helps immensely. Otherwise, that'd be scary, man. Like six to 10 years of that stuff just stuffed inside. But that, you know, they talk about physician burnout and that's a big driver of it is you're at the end of this road where you're supposed to be the captain of the ship and you're supposed to be able to deal with these, even though you tell everyone else that's not a healthy thing to do to stuff all these emotions and you're supposed to be able to do that. And then it just eats at you over 10 to 15, 20 years and ultimately ends up in a bad place. So like, I'm still trying to figure that out. The best thing I can think to do is to be honest about them, not to try to, you know, deny that you're feeling that. And then, you know, thank God I have a wife who will listen to me a little bit and um, to talk about some of them. I think that's what makes you exceptional. It's what makes you exceptional, Andrew, Uh, as a human being, as a physician, all of the customers that you get to deal with which are not customers they're human beings and if we can make that transition in all of our lives uh we can try to make it up that mountain and and the fact that you're just willing to be open to it and just recognize it and not callous yourself over uh any patient who comes to you uh, would be very lucky well, I'm enormously grateful for this conversation. I have learned so much, as always. And uh, Ben, I know some folks are probably going to want to respond to this conversation. How could they do that? How can they get in touch with us? Yes, please. Uh, you can find us on Instagram at Mandate Pod. You, of course, please uh, send us in emails. We've had enormous response. It's been wonderful. We have such good questions. Uh, so please, that that is at Gmail, so mandate.pod at gmail.com. And now uh, we are on Twitter. So find us podcast at podcast mandate uh, and link up with, with us there. Of That's course, right. share, subscribe. That's it. Comment. The, the more stuff we can get on your favorite podcast platform, the more visibility these platforms are going to give us. So please share, comment, and like our stuff. Thanks for joining us for another Mandate. We'll see you next time.